under fire. Last time, if you'll recall, Dr. Like considered one of the initial encounters between Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh, requesting that he let his people go. Thus initiated a gruesome test of wills. Throughout the following chapters, with each encounter between the threesome, we repeatedly see Pharaoh trying to negotiate with Moses and Aaron, and repeatedly Moses driving back with a hard bargain. Moses refuses to compromise with Pharaoh, demonstrating his growing strength of leadership. As God begins to pour out plague upon plague, the tensions between the parties increase. And so the text reads that Pharaoh increasingly hardens his heart. And then in judgment upon him, it is God who will harden the heart of Pharaoh. It's not until Egypt is almost completely in ruins that the people and the officials of Egypt rise up to plea with Pharaoh to relent, to let Israel go. But he refuses until finally, at the cost of his own firstborn son, thus breaking the will of Pharaoh, he relents and finally lets the people go. Tonight, we're going to pass over chapters 7 through 13 so that we can focus on chapter 14 of Exodus, where we see Moses rise to a kind of climax in his leadership. But in this text, we also see another climax of the grand redemption of God for his people. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Exodus chapter 14 and the surrounding chapters are the passion of the Old Testament. It is the climax of redemption, the focal point of redemption for an entire era of people who would look to this event as they would eventually look forward to the cross. Just as we look back upon the cross, so the people of old looked back upon this great act of deliverance by Almighty God. Let us then read with earnest that we may gain insight into the ways of our God, our only Lord and Savior. Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi Aharoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians 
All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites, overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi Haharoth, opposite baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of Lot, fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians... The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this remarkable scene. This great display of your power acting in time. In a great historical event where you declared your victory and your power over the false gods, and over the powers of this world. 
I thank you that we are a people redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, that you have conquered that power of sin and death. Tonight, Lord, may you bless this reading and preaching of your word, that we may gain a heart of wisdom into the cross, into the redemption of our only God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen. None of my children have ever been the adventuresome types when it comes to swimming. They usually do not go near a swimming pool or the ocean waves unless daddy is somewhere near, whether to hold them, carry them, or hold their hands. Remember a few years ago, I was teaching my oldest son, TJ, some of the basics of swimming at a YMCA in St. Louis when he was about three years of age. I'd be holding him by his sides and encouraging him to blow bubbles kick his feet and move his arms. But TJ was not blowing many bubbles that afternoon because he kept talking, telling me, don't let go of me, Daddy. At this point, he had passed that age of fearlessness, that stage where, they can do, where kids are invincible. And he had gained that very natural fear children have when they realize their plight that they lack the necessary skills to stay afloat. And though T.J. knew that I would not let him plunge beneath the surface of the waters, he could not resist the impulse to say, Keep holding me, Daddy. Don't let go. Why wonder how many Israelites were uttering something similar as they passed along on dry ground with two towering walls of ocean threatening to come crashing down upon top of them. Just a little longer, God. Hold them back. Nice wind. Like children letting go of the side of the pool to learn how to swim. Israel had to pass through the waters in obedient faith in order to experience God's redemption. There was no alternative. God had placed them literally with their backs against the wall, so to speak. They were sitting ducks as God intentionally allowed Pharaoh's army to come and pursue them. The Israelites were rightly terrified. But they learned a valuable lesson that day. There would be no turning back. There was no escape other than what God provided. God's way. And God was up to something big that day. A mighty triumph over the greatest world power. That he might gain glory for himself. And then Israel would know that God was with them. A shield on their rear guard. And a cloud to lead them safely to the other side. The words of Isaiah 43, I believe... Reflect back upon this great incident and provide comfort and assurance to God's people wherever they are in crisis. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Only the God 
who passes through the turbulent waters and the scorching fires with his people can say such a thing. And yet, still, time and time again, though we know of God's mighty acts in history, though we can testify to his faithful presence with us throughout our perilous seasons of life, we nevertheless cry out with doubts and fears that perhaps this time he will let us down. I believe these words of Moses are recorded that we today might know that God is our Savior and that he has acted in time, space, and history for the good of his people for all time. The Exodus, as I said before, foreshadows the cross. It provides an anchor to our faith. When we are passing through turbulent waters, and we be threatened to be dashed against the rocks. I'd like to look at this text tonight from the vantage point of three crises. First, the crisis of the people who follow. Secondly, the crisis of Moses who leads. And thirdly, the crisis of God who saves. Notice from the outside and outset in chapter 14 that this is a crisis orchestrated by God. Back in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18 reveal that God intentionally led Israel not on the short land route to the land of the Philistines, but towards the sea. In doing so, God provides a test for Moses because Moses alone knows the will of Pharaoh that he is coming after them with chariots. And notice in verse 4 that God is so sovereign in the midst of this crisis that it is he who will harden Pharaoh's heart to send him in pursuit of the people Israel. And this is because God has a purpose in the midst of this crisis. To gain glory for himself that not only Israel, not only Egypt, but all the nations might know that he alone is God. God orchestrates crises in our lives for the purpose of his glory. God is never surprised by them. And if you are a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be certain that every single crisis in your life is orchestrated by God according to his set purpose and design. So that you and that others might know that he is God the only Lord and Savior. Every crisis in your marriage serves to prove that he is God, that neither one of you are, and that you would be wise to submit to God and do things his way. Every crisis in the lives of your children serves to teach them and their parents that they belong to the Lord. Every health crisis serves to show us that our bodies are not our own, that we've been bought and purchased by Christ. Every financial crisis, that we own nothing. All these crises exist to point us back to the one true God in whom alone we find our hope and strength. In verse 5, God's plan unfolds. Pharaoh and his officials, upon seeing the dust settle after the exodus, ask themselves... Who is going to clean up all this mess? The Egyptians have become so addicted to slave labor that they can't imagine living without it. 
they would actually prefer the punishment of Israel's God than deny themselves the services of these slaves. And so like a foolish junkie, like a drug addict, Pharaoh cannot let go, but leads his armies upon further self-destructive behavior. Such is the nature of sin. When we refuse to repent, our sin controls us and leads us to crash in an overdose. Pharaoh's horses and chariots give chase to Israel. And now God has set the stage. This is exactly what God wants. He has set a trap for Pharaoh, and Israel is the bait. He also, notice, has Israel exactly where he wants them. Hemmed in by the desert and the sea, there is no escape. Like flightless birds before hungry wolves, they cannot run. Their only option is to trust him. In verses 10 and following, we see the response of the people. The sight and the sound of Pharaoh's army fills them with dread and terror. And notice how they turn on Moses, their leader, with bitter sarcasm they quip. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? When the chips are down, God's people turn towards cynical despair. These people had witnessed ten of the most amazing acts of God in history. And yet on this occasion, they cannot imagine how they could possibly be saved from this fix. Their cynicism turns into wines in verse 12. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. How quickly they forget their plight as slaves under the hot Egyptian sun when staring face to face with death. God's power and his promises don't even register on the radar. What pressure points bring you to the point of crisis? What is big and scary enough to cause you to forget God's promises? Is bankruptcy big enough? Is it perhaps the threat of life? Perhaps if you lived or were living in another part of the world... A threat of death at being an American or being a Christian throughout your journey with God. What circumstances and what trials have tempted you to shake cynical fists at God? What losses have pushed you past your limits? Asking yourself, does God really care about me? Questioning the promises that you had always held to be true. The death of a loved one. The betrayal of a friend. The roof collapsing upon all your retirement plans, crushing your dreams of living in comfort and ease. God's people will face many big and scary things in autopsies and credit reports. But God is bigger and scarier than anything we will ever face, as the Egyptians will soon find out. Well, the people's response to the threat creates a crisis for Moses. Not only does he face the oncoming army of Pharaoh, he also has to calm and reassure the people. Now remember, Moses does not yet know the game plan. He knew that Pharaoh would come, but God had simply told him to go and camp 
at the beach. The next move was up to God. You know, sometimes God does not show us the next thing until we obey and go to the place that he points to. And only once we are in the crisis does God show us the solution. Like Winston Churchill in World War II, we see here Moses in his finest hour in verses 13 and 14. With no chariots, no trained soldiers, not enough flotation devices for everybody, Moses stands there with the surf crashing behind him and instructs his people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Israel's task was not to fear, but to trust. To stand firm. To not panic, not run helter-skelter, but to be still and wait upon God. Their God is a warrior. Egypt may have their chariots, but we have Almighty God on our side. This is no contest. Do not fear for yourselves, rather fear for Pharaoh and his officers. The shining moment, perhaps, of the Bush presidency was when he calmly and courageously responded to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. He was able to look at terror in the eye, call its bluff, and rally America to hope, convincing them that they could not only recover, but prevail in the midst of this crisis. America was too great, too firmly established upon principles of freedom and justice to shut down at the hands of a few cowards who would intimidate us with their nihilistic fury. President Bush refused to believe that America would shrink back as a world power, as a promoter of democracy throughout the world, in response to this incident. The mark of a leader is the ability to handle a crisis, to face reality, and yet maintain perspective that this is not the end of the world. The leader sees the crisis for what it is. From man's point of view, it is a colossal challenge. But from God's point of view, it's an insignificant obstacle placed there by design for a purpose. And the man of God must labor to see every crisis from the vantage point of God. That he might trump his fears, doubts, and insecurities... And so, with his refuge in God, Moses stands poised. With no pretense, no charade of courage, Moses is able to tell his people that God is in control. And with confidence, he says, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Moses stands his ground against the oncoming attack. George Washington and others like him in the Revolutionary War and Civil War had to model for their soldiers how to stand their ground, to not flee in cowardice at the oncoming armies. 
Here it is, we see a different Moses than what we saw earlier in chapters 3 and 4. For every compelling reason God had given for, for Moses' commission to leadership, Moses had an excuse in response. And then when Moses runs out of excuses, he merely crumbles to his knees and pleads with God to please send somebody else in his place. And yet God would have it no other way. God was determined to get his man. And so we see in Moses what God can do with a man who's willing to submit to God's will. Moses has seen what God can do. He's seen him bring a mighty empire to its knees in desperation. Throughout the plagues, Pharaoh grew steadily weaker and weaker, while Moses grew stronger. And Moses now stands firm and resolved upon the rock of the Lord his God, able to face any battle. Moses not only stands, he also speaks. And with calming words, he speaks order into the chaos of the minds and hearts of his people. The people are lashing out in the squalor of all their irrational fears. While Moses is able to suppress their defeatist attitude with words of truth based upon the promises of Almighty God. God's pillar of fire provided light in the darkness. And likewise, Moses' word provide a lighted path upon the dark highways ahead for his people. Moses faces crisis and prevails. He stood his ground. He had spoken the words that God says to reassure his people. And now he had nothing less left to do but to wait upon God to act. And act, God does. God tells Moses to continue to move on with the people. Having passed this test, Moses is now privileged to the full plan of God. He is told to raise his staff, to cast his hand out over the waters, to divide them, and to walk. God provides the escape for his people. And in doing so, he will entice the army of Egypt in to face their doom beneath the depths. God's aim was that Egypt might know that he alone is the Lord. God makes walkways where there were none before. God opens doors that were once shut. God lowers mountains and raises up valleys for his people to walk. He topples kingdoms that all might know that he alone is God. And there is no other. Well, Israel's camp is still tense. There is nowhere to run. And as Pharaoh's army approaches, the angel of the Lord picks up and moves behind the camp of Israel to provide them a rear guard, an impenetrable wall to last throughout the night. Moses rises, upholds his staff, holds forth his hand, and God sends forth a mighty east wind, dividing the walls of water and transforming a gooey sea bottom into a dry highway for the Lord's people. Israel is tested. They must walk with towering walls of water on either side 
before they reach their safe destiny. Perhaps you've been in a restaurant or a museum that has those towering walls of of large aquariums. And you're safely on the inside with a firm glass barrier protecting you. You gaze at beautiful creatures swimming on the other side of the barrier as though they were at the bottom of the ocean. A little boy can't help but go up and tap on the glass to get the attention of a fish or especially a shark. Little does he know that a breach in that glass wall would engulf himself and his family within seconds. Israel walked between two walls of water without any protective barrier. And we can only imagine how the parents kissed the ground when they arrived at the other side, like landlubbers now grounded after being trapped out in the sea against mighty gale-force winds. But Israel, with Israel across, the job was still not finished. Notice that the angel removes that impenetrable wall and the chariots of Pharaoh are released like racehorses from their gates, scurrying towards their impending disaster. Now, one would think that by this time, Pharaoh would wise up and get the message. Israel's God had turned the Nile into blood. He had hailed down, had rained down hail and locusts and frogs and diseases and darkness of, many, of all kinds of plagues. He had taken Egypt's firstborn. Wouldn't two seawalls look more like a trap than an invitation to walk through? We can just imagine the officers of Pharaoh questioning to themselves, this seems like a really bad idea. But Pharaoh remains undeterred. Such is the pride in the irrationality of revenge of a man distorted in a rebellion against Almighty God. With Pharaoh Pharaoh enraged, his officers overconfident, the whole army presumptuously enters into the Lord's highway only to find themselves stuck in the mud, sitting ducks, awaiting a mighty onslaught. And so without the string of a bow, without the casting of a spear or stone, Israel watches as their God annihilates the greatest army on earth in a single blow. God gets the victory. His name will be cherished by his people. Egypt will learn to fear the Lord, and all the nations will magnify him for his great feat over mighty Pharaoh. And yet this was not God's crisis. Pharaoh was never a crisis for God. Defeating the Egyptian army was as simple as a child flooding army men with a garden hose in the backyard sandbox. No, the crisis of God is what would come in the wilderness wanderings. How would a holy God dwell with a sinful people? As we will learn in upcoming messages, the Israelites will prove to be an obstinate, And stiff-necked people, prone to rebellion. They will try Moses' patience. God will be tempted to destroy them on several occasions. Even suggesting that he raise up a whole new nation from the seed of Moses. How? 
How will God provide, how will God keep his promise to the patriarchs to be the God of their descendants? Mankind's sin creates a crisis for God. God originally created man for fellowship with himself. That plan is thwarted by our first parents who rebelled against him. And because God is holy, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden because God cannot be in the presence of sin. Being perfectly just, God must punish sin under the penalty of death. So how? How will God dwell with his people? Well, one of the chapters that we passed over was the Passover, which gives us a glimpse at God's solution to this problem. And if you recall the story, God threatened with the final plague to send the angel of death throughout the land and to strike down every firstborn of Egypt. But he forewarned Israel that if they would do this one thing, they would be spared. Each family would take in to their home a little lamb. On the appropriate day, they would slaughter the lamb, eat it for dinner, and apply its blood over the doorframe of the house. And so on that night, when the Lord came through the land to strike down the firstborns, when he would see the blood of the lamb, he would pass over those households, and those homes would be spared destruction. Likewise, when God sees each one of us covered in the blood of Christ, his wrath is appeased. His destruction passes over us. You see, the exodus from the Passover through the crossing of the Red Sea was the cross of the Old Testament people of God. And likewise, the cross of Christ for us, the New Testament church, is our passing through the Red Sea. Jesus is our mediator. He is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. In Christ, we passed through the waters, through the mighty torrents of God's almighty wrath that remains only for his enemies. We are baptized in Christ into his death. We have been pronounced clean, washed by the precious blood of the Lamb. The Israelites had no other alternative but to go through the waters or face the wrath of the army. Likewise, all mankind has no alternative other than to pass through the blood of Christ or face the unmitigated wrath of Almighty God. There is no other way. The exodus foreshadows the cross. Notice how in both events, God delivered his people by a mighty act of power. In both events, blood needed to be shed. In both incidents, the power of the world was toppled. At the exodus, Pharaoh's Egypt. At the cross, Satan's dominion of sin and death. In both places... We see that God's people need a mediator. At the Exodus, one sacrificial lamb for each family. At the cross, one sacrificial lamb 
for the entire family of God. And in both cases, God's people will learn that there is only one way of redemption. God's way. And to experience that redemption, we must walk in obedient trust in the ways of our personal God, who is always with his people. All man-made religion, all efforts at self-made works righteousness, are like the levees in New Orleans that failed under the pressure and weight of Hurricane Katrina, resulting in the flood of the city. Friend, if your faith is not in Christ alone, then you have no sure protection as you pass through the waters of life. As in the days of Noah, there is only one way to be saved, to get into the ark that God provided. Everything on the outside is doomed. And if you lack that security, place your trust today in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died a sacrificial death in our place, that we might be spared the wrath of God and might know their forgiveness of sins and life eternal in his presence. You can go home tonight in peace with Jesus Christ shielding you from God's wrath. And if Christ is your shield and your faith, then take up the armor of God as you continue on in your journey through swelling rivers, across burning bridges, and with Moses stand firm upon the foundation of God's promises. Speak the truth against falsehood. And let God's word bring order to the chaos of your mind and heart as you feel overwhelmed by the flood. And remember with Israel these words. The enemies you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Be still then and know that he is God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty act of salvation. In time, space, and history, we thank you for the exodus that anticipates and foreshadows the cross of Christ to come. The one way, the one way of salvation for all of humanity. Thank you for providing us a Savior. Deliverance from our sin and from your wrath. Thank you, Father. 